Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is Alison Nixon, Chief Research Officer at Unit 221B. Let's start right there, Alison. What is Unit 221B and what does the Chief Research Officer there do? Um, Unit 221B is a boutique security consulting company. Uh, we focus on cybercrime and protecting customers from cybercrime, helping customers protect themselves from cybercrime. Um, we do all the regular security consulting stuff, um, pen testing, purple team, red team, blue team. Uh, and then we also do investigations and threat intelligence. And a big chunk of our investigations work is actually for law firms. So we aim to actually fuse threat intelligence and attribution and real world consequences. How do you define cybercrime? Because it's we're in this place where ransomware is now kind of a professional operation. We've started to see the professionalization of ransomware. And for this purpose of this conversation, when you say you focus on cybercrime, are you, are you involving nation state APTs and that kind of threat actors? Or are you more focused, uh, more narrowly on, on, on financially motivated cybercrime? Yeah, um, we are pretty much focused on non-state actors, um, you know, career criminals who are financially focused or otherwise. And the nation state stuff will let other people handle that. Uh, I've seen some of the research work that you guys have done. And in my mind, I imagine as an outsider, I imagine you get to see some of the darkest of the dark parts of the internet. And, and that is as dark as it gets anyway. Can you talk a little bit about like the actual human part of the work? Does, do, you, do you feel, is there like an emotional, mental toll about tracking these research groups and being in the Discord channels and trying to manage all that? Or do you see it as just routine forensics computer work? I mean, it's routine in the sense that it's what we do every day. Um, but in terms of managing the emotional labor aspect of it, I mean, people don't really realize, but threat intelligence is does involve a lot of emotional labor. Uh, you have to get inside the heads of these people, and every human has an emotional element to them. So you also have to be aware of that. So like some of these threat actors, you know, part of their motivation is financial, but part of their motivation is just like abusive. And they're just, some of these people are straight up bad people. Uh, so you have to kind of, you know, pace yourself, separate yourself in ways that are, you know, work appropriate and allow you to do your job, but also prevent yourself from getting burnout. So like, for example, the way I manage it is I might review a whole bunch of material, but I won't look at any images. Like I don't like, um, like certain categories of bad stuff. So I just like block that out. And then if I need to see something specifically, I'll like specifically see that one thing and then go back to blocking it out and just read text. So like just because of the way my brain works, I'm okay having it abstract as text and I can handle that. It doesn't affect me. But then other people, you know, the way their brains work, they might not want to read nasty text at all. So part of it is like recognizing where you're like, almost like trigger areas are and keeping them away from your work. Uh, and then like working on the stuff where you have a higher tolerance for it. And, you know, some people are just straight up not cut out for this work and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and it's healthy to recognize that and figure out like what you can tolerate and don't exceed that. And that's how you can actually have a career and not burn out within a couple years. Is there something that, that helps you identify the people that is cut out for this? Is there a, is there a trait? Is there some sort of uh, 
background that helps folks. I'm trying to get into conversation about folks getting into cybersecurity might think of this type of forensics work as an area they want to get into. Or recruiters in your space might be looking to find the, 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 you know, the best bit of researchers to contribute to the work you're doing. What are some characteristics and traits that make a good cybercrime researcher? I mean, I think it depends on the exact kind of research that you're doing. Um, because this whole area of work involves so many different subcategories. Right. And most of those subcategories don't really involve much emotional labor, so to speak. You're like people do forensics, they do network forensics, they do, you know, other kinds of tracking like that. And there's not really any human element because they're just looking at lineages of malware and stuff like that, tracking IP addresses. Um, the when I make these comments about the emotional aspect of it, it's like when you're reading threat actor forums, you're reading threat actor chat logs, you're um, compiling a narrative of what this threat actor was up to in the past several months or years. Um, so that's the part that is actually the most emotionally taxing stuff because some of these threat actors, they lead really uh, depraved lives. Uh, so, you know, if somebody is going into that specific subcategory of work, um, one thing I would look for is like, can that person do the work without getting super emotionally invested into it? It's like, a real thing, right? It's that's not a trivial yeah. thing, right? Oh, it's it's a completely valid thing. Like, if if somebody was doing this work and they got super emotionally invested in it, it's not a wrong thing that they're doing. It's just like how their personality is and how their brain works, um, and that's totally valid. But if you know, if going through this stuff is like making you cry, uh, I don't think that you should do this right. long term because that's just incredibly taxing on yourself and you're going to burn yourself out uh, versus, you know, there's other people that do this work that can that can maintain a distance and like compartmentalize stuff in their brain. Uh, and, you know, people have different tolerances for this stuff. Uh, so, you know, leave the work to those people. Do something else that's less emotionally taxing. Um, but like if this kind of work is impacting the rest of your life, your relationships, right. making you stressed out, making you upset at people, um, this is not the category of work. And, you know, it's not wrong to recognize that. And, you know, there's so many different aspects of this work. You can find something that's not emotionally taxing. Where do you find your energy and, and passion for this work? What is your background that got you here? When I first, like when I was little, we had computers in the house and this was like in the nineties and not many people had computers in the house at the time. So I was lucky. Uh, and I was like probably nine or something when I realized this is, I want to do some kind of job involving computers. Cause this is the coolest thing ever. I'm going to spend all my time on the computer. And then I did. And it was the coolest thing ever. Um, but at first I thought I wanted to go into computer programming because that's the most obvious computer-related job. And then I realized much later on that I actually hate computer programming, and I learned <laughs> how to do it, but I just didn't enjoy it. Um, my, my brain did not like that for the way that it works. Um, but I do like reading about drama. <laughs> so, um, so eventually I gravitated to like doing attribution work because that is just a nonstop Jerry Springer episode all the time it is that level of crazy and like it for people that grew up in the 90s they know what i'm talking about um <laughs> it's uh that's that's what third actor attribution is it's just constant 
following drama and documenting drama and eating popcorn the whole time. Interesting. The, you've you've been around long enough, like me, to have seen this evolution of cybercrime activity over the years and where we are today. Why do you think we are where we are? Where the the, the headlines are dominated by every company being completely compromised, every ransomware epidemic everywhere. Why haven't we been able to stay ahead of cybercrime? Can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, the evolution of what you're seeing over the years and why does it? And is that an accurate feeling? Like it feels like we're behind the eight ball all the time. Yeah. I think we've always been behind the eight ball, like co- collective we, right. um, because preventing problems requires foresight and foresight would require investment, spending money into something that has no immediate positive returns. Investors hate this. Shareholders hate this. Uh, so any kind of initiative that involves proactively spending to prevent a bad thing that may never happen, especially if you succeed at fixing it, uh, you know, that just doesn't play well, especially with the way the American business culture is. Right. Uh, so, you know, every single one of these big headlines, there's a story behind the headline uh, that has something to do with somebody that had been warning the company for a long time prior and somebody is reading every single one of these articles saying, I told you so. I predicted this, you know, every time. Uh, so it's it's really a question of how do we get leaders and organize, organizations to actually practice foresight? Do you think, but do you really think it's a case of not having spent enough money or maybe just not spending the money in the right foundational places? Because when I look at how much money has been spent on cybersecurity, how much uh, venture capital investment have been poured into startups and how much money just m- runs through the ecosystem. It's in the, it, it's significant number. Uh, when these companies, the, these big giant companies that get ransomware and we're seeing their names in the headlines, like they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on security programs everywhere. So it's not a case of money being short and we're still here. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the other side to the coin. Uh, like that's the other side of the problem is after the big terrible event happens then leadership is like i'll pay any amount of money to make this stop and we see billions of dollars getting thrown at various things but that money is not going to like in in many cases that money is not going to projects that are actually moving the ball forward because there's this huge mismatch between business models and return on investment versus positive cybersecurity gain. And like, it's it's always been this way. Like some of the most important projects out there holding the internet together are run by some guy in his 70s. True, some volunteer guy who's, yeah. Yeah, or, or they're run by like some college student and they spun up this thing on a lark and then they abandon it. And like, you know, it, it's it's just very difficult because in order to get that money, you need a sales team and you need a marketing team and you need this whole infrastructure that has nothing to do with positive cybersecurity gain. And it's almost like the whole system or the ecosystem kind of selects for organizations and projects that are really more about sales and marketing and getting that money than they are about actually making functional tools that move the ball forward. Can we talk a little bit about ransomware? Because I imagine that's your sweet spot. You mentioned two to one B works primarily for law firms. I imagine you're involved in a lot of these ransomware cases. 
seems to me that the ransomware ecosystem have become super professionalized. In the past, it used to be spray. A lot of consumers get smacked and then they try to get money out of consumers. It's been shifted to the B2B world now. And the really, really interesting ones are the human operated ones with nation state implications and all of that. It just, it seems mucky and and head scratching. (laughs) Is there a single thing that keeps us behind the eight ball forever? Or is this something that we'll ever get a handle on? I honestly don't know. So the rise of professional ransomware groups is something that is concerning, like on a big scale. Like, I really do believe that all of this money flowing to whoever runs these groups is probably something that contributes to destabilization in the world. Like you think big scale political destabilization, wars, conflicts, you know, all that stuff needs a lot of money to run. And when we look at these professionalized cybercrime gangs, there's a lot of money involved and it's just kind of disappearing. And the big question is, where is all that money going? And I really do believe that a substantial portion of this money is somehow going towards groups that are destabilizing the world. And so, you know, we really need to take this seriously because this is one of those things that can get away from you. Uh, You know, money equals power in the way that the world works nowadays. And if these groups get too much money, that means they're going to get too much power. And people don't take cyber criminals super seriously. They kind of just treat it like a video game, like defenders and security people. A lot of them just kind of see this as like just a purely computer thing, like a video game. Um, But the reality is, is that this is human conflict that's playing out. And we need to take this seriously because this stuff can lead to wars. I want to ask about ransom payments, though, because this wealth transfer that you're describing happens because vendors, uh, 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 victims pay ransoms. And victims pay ransoms because they're desperate, their systems are shut down, you can actually be ransomed out of business without paying the ransom. When you talk to your clients, how do you advise them to, you know, straddle this line between whether we pay the ransom or whether we don't pay the ransom and try to recover? Is that something you recommend? Help them, help me understand how your, your clients view this. So any kind of threat actor engagement that results in payment to the bad actor, our top priority in general is to find a way to not pay the bad actor. Um, we released a blog post on our website a while ago about a strain of ransomware that our CEO cracked. Um, so they've been doing some cryptanalysis stuff and trying to break ransomware in that way where, you know, if we can find some way around it, then that can result in some percentage of these people not paying the ransom. And that's a huge victory for us. Um, You know, once the problem gets to the point where the victim is stuck between a rock and a hard place where they're forced to make that very difficult Right. There is no decryption tool. There is no, there is no opportunity. You're ransomed, you're, all your files are encrypted and now all you're facing is instructions on how to pay. Where do you go? Yeah. I mean, Ultimately, that's up to the victim because if they have to choose between their company going out of business or paying some money to some really bad people, uh, I mean, they're not going to pick the first option. That's just the reality. So what we do need to recognize is that that exact point in time is not the only decision point. There were many decision points before this. And at any of these steps, if the right decision was made, we wouldn't be at this terrible end point. So you know, one aspect of this would be 
um, proactively investing in data backups and security so that uh, when these bad actors get in, you know, first of all, if they can get in, and then second of all, when they get in, uh, limit their damage and have rapid recovery and test your recovery processes and your disaster response and things like that. You know, companies with functioning process like that, they don't see impact like this from ransomware. And for them, it's much better, like it's a much better option to just not pay and recover from backups. So, you know, that's really the best case scenario. And I think because of how much attention the issue is getting, an increasing number of companies are investing in backups. Are those best case scenarios that you describe rarities or that more? I'm trying to understand when I read all the headlines, it means that a lot of people are in this bad place already. They've already screwed up a long time ago and they're already in this bad place. What percentage of folks are in the bad place versus good place? Do we, are the majority of folks ending up in a bad place? I don't know if there's any numbers to answer that question because we would never have news articles about people that restored from a backup. Right. That's true. But here's the other thing with restoring from backup. None of that stuff is trivial. Those foundational things you talk about, uh, have backups and, you know, have your play, your tabletop exercises to restore. A lot of companies are finding out after they ransom that the restore from backup will take 30 years, right? right? You get this kind of like a reality check on how much data actually needs to be backed up and so on. That That, that is not trivial. Uh, uh, do you recommend, just a blunt question, do you recommend that security programs kind of hold some Bitcoins for a bad day just in case they get to a stage where they should be paying ransoms to get? I don't recommend that anybody holds Bitcoins for any reason. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I mean, restoring from backups might be non-trivial, but these are things that you can test and practice before the big day comes. And having backups and never testing them is kind of a failure of the process and you know the failure happened long before the hack uh so it it's really just a question of is the company willing to practice foresight and invest in things that don't have an immediate positive return and if they're willing to look past the immediate quarterly returns on their investment um then they can think things through and actually build working processes and test them out beforehand so that if slash when the big day comes, they'll just whip out the playbook, go through all the steps, and they'll be fine. Uh, but that just requires previous investment and headcount and right. all that. And the reality, though, is if you reach at this stage where you're actually forced to pay a ransom, you still have to get that right. Or else you'll be here next month and the month after and the month after. Right? Like At some point for your security program to be mature, you have to get those baseline things right. Uh, we've started to see government. We're starting to see government talks about sanctions and putting sanctions against some crypto exchanges. And there's a lot of activity at a high, very high level to try to thwart this ransomware ecosystem. Some law enforcement shutdowns and so on. Is any of this working? Um, I what I would say is that people expect to see a positive result much sooner than they should be expecting to see it. Like. Uh, people are pretty cynical about the effectiveness of government action, and I get it. I'm totally there with them. But the problem is, is that private sector action can only go so far. Um, you know, people in the private sector do not have the ability to arrest people, and we never will. It doesn't matter how effective we are. Um, the person at the other end of the computer is still going to be physically on that computer doing bad things forever. 
And until somebody arrests them, they're not going to stop because this is their only way of income. This is the most money they could possibly make for their given amount of time. So private sector does have to work with government because there's just some things we straight up cannot do and should not ever be allowed to do. Uh, so that's one part of it. Um, the other part of it is making sure the government works well with private sector. Uh, like with sanctions, one big concern is what if we drive payments underground? What if victims are paying and not reporting it? That means we're going to have uh, inaccurate numbers. That means we're not going to be able to track where the money's going. Uh, all the anti-money laundering people are not going to be able to follow the money. Uh, that's very concerning. So, you know, I think that these kinds of conversations are including all of these concerns and things are getting better very slowly, much more slowly than anybody would be satisfied with. But there's no other option. We can't just not do this because this stuff right. destabilizes the world and causes wars. Let me switch gears. I want to ask about groups like Lapsus. I'm going to just throw out some code names here. You'll recognize them. But for the audience, uh, you know, we're starting to see news reports of, uh, of groups like Lapsus, Star Fraud, Scattered Spider, The Calm, depending on who you call them. But there's a lot of there's a new narrative that's emerging that this is a group of teenagers. What do we know about this kind of subgroup, subgenre? Is there anything you can tell me about what we should read into from all these reporting about teenagers wreaking havoc across the internet? Yeah. So this is where I get to be the person that says, I told you so. I told you this was a problem. You guys didn't do anything. <laughs> well, I'll try not to be that person, but I am. The whole issue of young hackers, it's actually always been a problem. And like in my career, every like 10 months to a year, some kind of big thing would blow up. And I would be the only person who knew about the group beforehand because I would have been one of the very few people paying attention to them beforehand. And the reasons for this are related to the whole issue of foresight that I mentioned earlier, which is like invest in things that don't have an immediate positive return, but you know, based on your expertise, that it's going to be a big problem. So my research has always focused on weird threat actors uh, demonstrating capabilities that nobody should be able to do. And even if they are demonstrating these capabilities for a completely frivolous purpose, like swatting video game live streamers or something equally, people don't take it seriously. Um, you know, if you look at it purely from a capability standpoint, that should actually be very concerning. Uh, if somebody can evacuate a building, what if somebody used this as a technique while they're attacking a company. Uh, that's just very concerning. So I had dedicated my research to that kind of behavior, and that tended to gravitate towards the young hackers because these communities of young hackers are almost like an innovation hotspot because you know they're at that point in their lives where they're experimenting with everything constantly, and 99.9% .9 of the time, all the stuff they're trying is failure, not going to work, uh, but that tiny percentage where they succeed in hacking somebody, uh, you know, that, that kind of technique and knowledge, they are discovered in these communities and then they spread. And not only that, they're used for extremely frivolous purposes. So give me some examples. What do you mean by frivolous purposes? Uh, so like harassing video game live streamers, um, harassing underage girls and 
Like, I don't mean frivolous in, in terms of like, I unimportant because some of this stuff is right, incredibly right, right. life safety, like people have died kind of things. Uh, but a corporation is not going to invest a billion dollars into stopping this, you know? Right. Um, so that's what I mean when I say frivolous. Uh, so like these, these kind of like weird harassment um, and targeted harassment and things along those lines, um, when this stuff happens and victims are targeted in certain ways that technically shouldn't be possible and certain success rates are a little bit too high, um, I key in on that and I'm like, you know, maybe there's something new that happened here. And a huge positive to this kind of work is that because the perpetrator is young, their OPSEC is terrible, they don't have life experience in the world, and there is no book that you can read to remediate that. So it's really easy to find the stuff and figure out what the exploits are and what they're doing. So this whole side of the underground has been a rich source of information for attacks that are coming up. So I've kind of taken advantage of this uh, in my career where I would, you know, pre-invest my time and effort and energy into these things that I know the world does not care about yet, but I know they're going to care about it because this is a capability that's very bad. And what if right. more serious actors were using the same capability? Uh, that's super disturbing. So I'm going to study this and eventually one day it's going to blow up. And when that happens, I'll be there. And here we are. Yeah. So I'm here now. And it's because of that pre-investment in time. When we when we talk about lapsus and star fraud scattered spider this group, are we talking about a group of thousands of uh, 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 members? Are we talking about fifty? Give me a sense of the scale, uh, uh, just in pure numbers of these attack groups. Yeah. So there's different layers to this. You've got the broader ecosystem, which is what they call the com, and this is a self-identification thing. This is a name they came up with. Uh, that broader ecosystem has been exploding since about 2018. And I would say there's thousands, possibly even in the five figures amount of people involved in the comm, uh, to varying levels. Like there's most of these people are at the bottom of the pyramid as all things go. Right, right. Um, and then you have these little subgroups that bud off from this larger kind of uh, loose Collective, social yeah. world. Um, and these these groups meet each other on criminal social platforms uh, because all, all like every, in the com there's multiple different social nexuses where these people tend to hang out. Um, and I won't list them by name, but there's forums, there's websites, there's chat channels, and they hang out. They do antisocial activities. They do like edgy teenager bad kid stuff, and right. people on the internet tend to gravitate towards like-minded people. That's just a strange emergent property of the internet. And so like-minded threat actors or like budding threat actors and people with certain tendencies, they find each other, they form little subgroups that are maybe like three to 10 people, pretty small, like little wolf pack sized subgroups. And, you know, they're highly experimental as well. And a lot of these subgroups do not rise to the level of something that you or I would have to work on, but a tiny number of them do. And so these groups that are named, uh, that have made, name, made, yeah, made names for themselves, 
gotten publicity and stuff, um, the that is kind of like the smallest unit here um, where you see these like strange social phenomenon. How skilled are they? It varies. Um, the ones making the names for themselves. Let's let's focus on the ones making names for themselves. And I mentioned some of these. I mentioned some of the monikers there. But like, how skilled are they, and why are they so successful? So, to, first of all, to answer the question about skill levels, um, a lot of people in the industry use language that is unintentionally misleading. Uh, I don't think it's intentional at all. Like, but but I want to call this out so that everyone's cognizant of a potential unconscious bias. So. A lot of the times people in the industry will describe a threat actor group as either unsophisticated or sophisticated. And they always treat it like a binary or a single linear measurement that's from zero to a hundred. And that's all of the thought they give uh, towards the potential skill level of a threat actor. But the problem is, is that the reality is that the level of danger and risk from a person is not from some kind of linear measurement of skill. There's different areas that someone can be skilled in. And people in the industry may not recognize that certain skills don't look technical, but they require practice and not everybody can just do them. So social engineering is one example of it where people don't really seem to respect it as a technical skill. They treat it like a soft skill versus a hard skill where by default, soft skills are less regarded. Um, right. which is another bias, but, but deeply effective. Yeah. The social engineering, the people who, who nail social engineering and, and, and can conduct those activities with great skill, deeply, yes. deeply uh, efficient, right? Yes. Social engineering requires practice skill and then also some kind of inherent talent. Uh, I definitely could not do half the things that some of these social engineers are pulling off. They're, they're incredibly good at it. And people in the industry that discount the, value of these skills and how formidable they are, uh, those people could not pull off the same uh, attacks. Uh, so I want to call that out as like skill level is not a linear value and uh, sophisticated versus unsophisticated is not good language. So that said, um, when you look at the composition of these groups and you figure out who's the most dangerous, like how does this work out? Um, when you're looking at these little wolf packs, you realize that in a lot of cases, these people have different specialties and then they have different personalities. And you'll notice that some of these people are crazy. They are just really, really out there. They're doing really wild stuff all the time. Uh, they are self-destructive. They are probably on drugs. Uh, they will go on hacking sprees for days and days and days and not sleep like really something chemically it's like hacking benders yeah yeah like something chemically is going on um and oftentimes these are the first people whose identities get unmasked uh so that's another aspect to this like it's almost like personality archetypes and people like this are in very intense very creative and they are also sometimes the most dangerous because they're also starting trouble too and uh, when we see cases of hacking turn into cases of harassment and real-life threats, um, it's often this kind of personality, uh, personality that's driving it. So, um, you know, that's one aspect of it. And then there's another kind of actor who would be a member of these groups is like um, amoral developers that are highly skilled and do whatever they're told 
regardless of uh, the risks involved or how legal it is. And these people kind of form like a quieter uh, technical underpinning to the group. So they tend to be like the developers of malware, the developers of fish kits. And like doing attribution on them, you're going to have to find that information from digging through their code, uh, finding uh, any accounts that might be associated with that code from that malware. And they're not going to be bragging and posting on social media about all the crimes they did. So, you know, that's, that's another aspect of it. And then there's also people that are more financially motivated and they might be handling uh, more of the money side for the group. And those tend to be older and much more difficult to identify. So when you have all these disparate elements that come in where you can't even rank them by skill because it's like ranking apples and oranges and bookshelves. And, you know, there's something about this, like the nature of these small groups with totally different personalities working together towards a common goal of messing everything up. uh, That's extremely formidable and people need to take this seriously. Um, the, this is, these guys have been so prolific and so successful, success being in quotation marks, that the government actually issued, a, the government actually put their cybersecurity review board to look at lapses and they just issued this report with a list of recommendations. Can you just kind of go through a, a list of maybe the top four, three, four things a CISO or a defender should be doing urgently to address this specific actor set? Are they doing anything characteristically different from threat actors in general? What is, is there a unique characteristic that here that could help a defender focus on investing in an area to block this? I think the answer really depends on what kind of organization it is. Uh, if it is an organization that has a consumer facing brand, they are going to have a fraud team. And in many cases, the fraud team does not talk to the threat intel team. And that's one major issue that I think companies need to start looking at is, you know, threat intel and fraud and anti-abuse. Like the anti-abuse desk is another example. Um, They all need to be talking to each other and or be one unit. Uh, So that's one issue. And more broadly speaking, maybe what all CISOs need to be thinking about is what are the problems that I'm ignoring today? And that's very difficult to answer because that involves investigating your own biases. Um, And every CISO at different organizations, if they really do some introspection and figure out what am I ignoring today, you know, that might be a patch management system that's not functioning well, or that might be a fraud pattern that's not getting run down, or, you know, it might be external researchers notifying them that they have a problem and they're not doing anything about it. Uh, It really depends on the situation, but the problem here is that there are biases at play that people need to introspect and understand, like specifically for these young threat actors, uh, because they are so uh, like self-discrediting and they use language that makes you not take them seriously and they are factually speaking very young, it makes people not prioritize the threat coming from any kind of threat actor like this. 
So that's a huge bias that I see. Um, like when I'm notifying people about stuff, I can see their brain shut down in real time when I tell them that the person that breached their whole company is 14 or something ridiculous like that. Uh, you know, like that that is a problem. And, you know, no matter what demographic the threat actor is, you need to take it seriously. Like it doesn't matter if they're Russian or what their race is or what their age is if the capability that they're demonstrating is really, really bad, that's what you need to focus on. So yeah, just, I, I would say, long story short, inspect your biases, try to overcome them. I want to get to pick your brain a little bit on the attribution bit, but two, two questions that just come to mind as I was listening to you talk is if you know it's a 14 year old, doesn't law enforcement know it's a 14 year old? And if we are, if we already have kind of settled on who the identities of these folks are, why are they still running around? I mean, that's the general question being asked by the public. Why are why if we know that these teenagers and we know their names, why are they still running around? Is there is there some sort of blocker to getting law enforcement involved? I know, right? This is so frustrating. Yeah, there are uncountable cases where me, my colleagues, people that work in this category of work have found someone demonstrating very concerning capabilities, but they are very underaged or even just 17, and we'll notify law enforcement, and these people will continue to rampage through their entire rest of their childhood, and are... And we're not talking about folks in Russia or China where they're away from the long arms of law, right? I mean, you're talking about Westerners. Yeah. These are people living in Five Eyes countries, living in Europe. They're speaking English fluently, and they are very obviously living in the West, and many of them living in the United States. Uh, I would say most of them, United States, Canada, uh, and and Five Eyes countries in general. Why, so why why does law enforcement ignore you guys? Is there an is there an attribution issue? Is there a, a, there's no will to go after this? If if ransomware and this epidemic is such a high priority thing, why do you think you they're not listening to folks who are handing the research to them on a platter? Uh, they're not ignoring us. Just to be clear. <laughs> Um, so, like, the individual agents working these cases, like the people at the bottom of the totem pole over in law enforcement land, uh, they are literally just as frustrated about this as the private sector is. When these people, when these bad actors are raging, like, rampaging through the rest of their childhood, that wastes an incredible amount of time on our side, both public and private sector, because all we're doing is just, like, documenting, here's the latest crime that they did. It's the same person. Let's add it to their case pile. And law enforcement is the mirror image of having to deal with that on their side because private sector hands over all of this information to law enforcement. It's like, hey, here's a crime. We're reporting it. You know, anything we can do to help, please. Right, right. Uh, but on, on the other side, law enforcement has a lot of issues that they have to deal with. So, um. You know, a lot of the agents that we deal with are quite competent, diligent, and the problem is not really with them. It's actually part of it is the policies and laws are rightfully protecting children. Uh, we do not want to be a society that just throws children in jail. Uh, right. That's incredibly uncomfortable. Um, but on the other hand, with the advent of the Internet, there are so many opportunities for children to violate the law in ways that cross borders and go internationally, where before the internet, 
troubled teenagers and stuff, they would be a problem in their local community. And local laws have ways of dealing with this. There are youth diversion programs. There are anti-gang programs and stuff like that. Um, and that whole infrastructure is, you know, it's reached a level of maturity that the equivalent of this on the cyber side does not exist right now. Like, for example, state and local law enforcement do have abilities to deal with minors in the United States. But federal law enforcement, by policy, they have no federal juvenile system. So they can't do anything about a minor. If they were to do something about a minor, they'd be throwing them in jail with the rest of the adults. And like the, the policy that's not a functional not, society for us. Yeah. yeah, that's even worse than throwing children in jail is throwing children in jail with adults. So, yeah, uh, there, there's just no infrastructure or bureaucratic maturity for dealing with this because it is legitimately a relatively new problem for society. So, you know, in the meantime, those of us working on the problem are just documenting where we can, uh, working with each other and trying to figure out ways to get around all these frustrations. And I really do think that, you know, as cybercrime in uh, among young people is continuing to explode and young people are realizing that this is a career they can get into and they're making a conscious decision to not get a legitimate job and instead go into fraud, um, we are going to see law enforcement and policymakers and government at all levels are eventually going to start passing laws to start dealing with this. And, you know, one of the concerns is, will the pendulum swing too far the other way? Like, can we actually just find the middle ground and, and stay there and not swing too far the other way? Um, so that'll be probably the next challenge. Uh, we're running out of time, but I want to give you a chance to kind of help me understand where we are on the attribution front. How good is our attribution? When I say our attribution, as an industry as a whole, uh, 10 years ago, we had vendors who say we don't do attribution because it's just very, very difficult to, to get it right and very easy to get it wrong. So we'll call an actor a Russian-speaking actor or a Chinese-speaking actor. Today, I see Microsoft putting out threat, threat intel reports that said this is a Russian group. This is where they are affiliated with. Uh, uh, all the big vendors are doing it. All the private sector vendors are doing outright attribution naming, naming and shaming actors. Have we just gotten so much better at it that we've accepted that every vendor is putting it out? Or are you starting to see mistakes in attribution that's causing problems? Help me understand as, a, as an art form, where are we with attribution? Yeah. So with APT attribution, I would say the industry's gotten a lot better. Um, this... The APT problem has been going on for such a long time that, you know, threat intelligence organizations have been able to reach a level of maturity where they really can be documenting this stuff. Um, but now in the recent about a year at this point where organizations are finally realizing that domestic cybercrime is actually a big problem and we've been ignoring it for a long time and we need to jump on this. So there's almost like a reactionary push to like, we got to get on this now. So a lot of these vendors that have long time experience tracking APT are kind of like turning their eye to cybercrime and all the organizational maturity and processes that they've developed to deal with APT are not always a good fit. They don't transfer, right? It doesn't transfer perfectly. Some of it does. Some of it doesn't. Uh, and you know, it's, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Like they, they still need to work cases. They need to get this stuff done, protect their clients. 
Um, but like on the attribution side, it's just a little bit weird to be making up names for groups that name themselves. And, you know, when it's possible to do 100% attribution of like, here's the list of people and exactly where they live. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be putting that in a blog post, but, you know, it's it, it's just a totally different beast from APT on that side. Um, and I think companies companies get that. Is it more difficult? Nah. It's not more difficult nah, to do, right? Especially easier. when you're talking about when you're talking about OPSEC and kids making OPSEC mistakes. It's probably a, a little more difficult for some of the like you know some of the professional guys who have kind of latched on there to make money. Some of the, the, the coders and so on. I, I imagine some of the attribution and those pieces are a little more difficult. But this is a lot easier. You're saying? Yeah, a small percentage of the cybercrime underground are actually difficult to track down, but the vast majority are really easy to track down, and really local is it important whether we call it scattered spider or the calm or like why is that important i mean we need to we need to understand each other when we talk about things so when people refer to quote unquote scattered spider uh, that term specifically has gotten incredibly muddy because people especially victims coming in and trying to report stuff uh, they're just saying everything is scattered spider that like if the threat actor acts like an idiot and says the n-word it's scattered spider um like no right 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 just poor attempts at attribution yeah but i mean like when victims are trying to report stuff or companies and different organizations are trying to communicate something to each other uh they need some kind of common language that's understood by both parties and um if like if we could replace most of the usage of the word scattered spider with the com, that would actually be not only more accurate and descriptive, um, but you know, it, it's just better naming. It's also not a marketing term specific to one vendor. Um, but right. I understand the practical reasons for everybody glomming onto some word that happens to be a marketing term. Um, but like, I'm hoping that there can be an increased amount of public understanding about what is this ecosystem called the com. What are these subgroups? What is the overall social phenomenon? And when this is better understood, we can do better attribution because now we can be much more precise in our language. Last question for you, Alison, as head of security research at Unit 221B, what are your predictions for where we are? Let's say a year from now, you and I are having this podcast a year from now. Are we talking about the same things? What are the trends and shifts you think that uh, we should be paying attention to one year, two year, three years. Um, I the big concern that I have is we are seeing this merger of different cybercrime worlds where novel techniques used for frivolous purposes are picked up by financially motivated actors that can then exploit those techniques to the fullest extent. And some of these techniques have gotten mainstream acknowledgement at this point, like swatting and sim swapping and employee tools phishing and hacking BPOs. Uh, but the violence as a service stuff is still like very much, bleeding edge is a really bad pun, but it is. And it exists, right? Yeah, it exists. And there are groups that are trying to figure out how to commoditize that and systematize that. And as we see increasingly, this is going to become more the domain of ma- mafias and cartels and oligarchs. and you know, right. big money flows that destabilize the world. And when physical violence is combined with cyber attacks, 
our industry is completely unprepared to deal with that entire dimension of activity. You know, we do security, but we don't do physical security. We do cyber computer stuff. And this is going to be something that the industry needs to understand in order to protect their clients. But then researchers and defenders at vendors and security teams need to understand that they are actually in the realm of human conflict. Their entire line of work is in the realm of human conflict. And for decades at this point, it's just been computer only. So you don't really have to take it seriously. You can just walk away, just turn off your computer, bro. Uh, but the way cyber there is attacks, no separation anymore. Yeah, yeah the, the way cyber attacks are evolving, there's no separation. You can't walk away from it. Uh, you can't protect your family from it. Uh, he, he, like this is a whole new world, and that's the next step that I see things going in, and it'll just be interesting to see how it shakes out. Alison, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your willingness to come and share your expertise with the audience. Thank you. <laughs>